This episode was originally a live conversation recorded at the SECAS Swiss VCs on stage event in November 2023. You know, the trend of corporates of delegating the development of their innovation that's then being picked up by the startups, that won't change. That's even growing, actually. And the needs for innovative solutions is also growing. So in my mind, uh, you know, the next upturn will be uh, even greater than the last one. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Good evening and a very well welcome to tonight's Swiss VCs on stage event by SECA. It's my pleasure to welcome you here tonight. My name is Sylvan. I will be your host tonight, and I'm also an entrepreneur myself and the podcast host at Swisspreneur, so it's my pleasure to guide you through the evening. We have a packed program in front of us. We're going to start with a keynote. Then we have literally VCs on stage in three-minute pitches each, 14 in total, before we're then going to wrap up the evening with a panel discussion. And then, of course, there will be plenty of time for apro and networking. So... I think it's a fair assessment to say with 18 VCs presenting tonight on stage or on the panel that the Swiss VCs ecosystem has really grown up and matured over the past years. We have four people joining us here on stage. I'm going to just quickly introduce them over name because they will then have 30 seconds to also quickly pitch what they're doing. So please welcome on stage Vivek Dogra, Lukas Andre, Dominique Gruhl and Ariana Walcott. Please all come on stage and a warm applause. Welcome. So I do want to quickly introduce you, but also give you the chance of introducing yourself, your activities in 30 seconds or less. I'm going to start with you first, Dominique. You became the CEO of Serpentine Ventures in 2023. And you have multiple funds. You have one that focuses on deep tech and another one on diabetes. So please give us your short pitch. Yeah, thank you very much. So we follow at Serpentine Ventures a multi-fund approach. We already have a rookie fund, flagship fund, which are pre-seed to uh, early series A funds that are closed. And the ones for which we're currently fundraising right now, one of them is a pan-European deep tech fund with a sustainability angle called our flagship fund two. And the other one is a very focused fund. It's something very unique. We have a, the Swiss Diabetes Venture Fund, which is a global champion in the area of uh, investing in diabetes. Great pitch. Thank you so much for being here today. Vivek, you're the next one here on the introduction list. You worked for Nestle in Open Innovation for more than 13 years before you then decided to become a venture partner with the European Circle of Bioeconomy Fund. So please also tell us a bit more about what you do and what your focus is. Exactly. So before Nestle, you know, that's what brought me to Switzerland in 2007. Uh, open innovation and venturing at Nestle. Uh, currently, I'm a venture partner to ECBF, which is a pan-European fund, um, German GPs, um, and uh, supported by the EIB, the European Investment Bank, under the EU Green Deal. But as we speak, together with my partner, Dan, who's, who's also in the audience, happy to, you know, you can have a conversation with him as well. We are in the process of setting up a more Swiss-centric fund, and uh, which would focus on climate tech in general. Fantastic. Thank you for being here today. Then, Ariana, you're next. You have one foot here in Switzerland, but another one in Silicon Valley in the US. And you basically focus on health and climate tech with your VC, Dart Ventures. 
please also quickly introduce yourself. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, as you said, we're focused on early stage companies um, in health and climate and uh, have a team in San Francisco and here in Zurich and actually somebody in Lausanne, so we are covering all of Switzerland, um, and are really focused on helping our portfolio companies enter the U.S. market. We do this with a 12-month program focused on getting U.S. investors, finding a first independent board members in the U.S., but also since we invest in health tech and early stage, figuring out things like what does the FDA process look like, uh, so the whole regulatory side or U.S. grants. Um, and we are also raising our 20 million fund now. Great. Thank you for joining us. Last but not least, Lucas, you have built companies yourself in the early internet days. Then I think in 2009, you decided to switch from being an entrepreneur to becoming an investor. And for the past six years, you have been with the European VC uh, Redstone. Welcome. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, Redstone is a European uh, VC firm. Uh, we are about 30 professionals in uh, offices in Berlin, Helsinki and Zurich. We have a bit of more institutional approach to venture capital compared to most of our peers. So we operate Redstone as a VC platform and have then selected uh, sector strategies on top of it. So we have separate funds in fintech, in uh, sustainable real estate, in social impact, in uh, industrial tech, to name a few. Uh, each of these funds have their distinct uh, specialized teams, but we operate in the, the common uh, VC infrastructure of Redstone. Uh, the sector. A focus allows us to select the best teams in a, in a distinct sector and to add uh, values to those startups. Uh, we have been one of the most active investors in the past year, so uh, this year we did 29 new investments in, uh, out of nine funds, and uh, so we are also pretty proud of our data analytics platform, Sophia. And uh, the latest fund we have raised uh, is a quantum technology fund, uh, one thing which I'm particularly proud of, uh, top team, uh, top setup, and to be able to catch the extraordinary opportunities of, uh, of, uh, of that. Uh, you can invest in either into one of the funds directly or uh, through a feeder structure into multiple funds uh, uh, together. Thank, Thank you. you for being here. So we want to make it very useful for you. So at the end, you also have chances to ask them questions if you want to know more details or more tips and tricks that they can share. And we're going to start with the first very important topics because not only startups are looking for investors, but also investors and funds are looking for investors themselves. So Vivek, when you look for investors, what is it that you look for in a potential investor for your fund? Yeah, that's a good starting point. Um, Thomas, you, you put the investors on your, on your charts in a few categories. I would look at only three buckets, corporate investors, industry players you know, with a corporate venturing arm, financial, large financial investors, and then family offices, high net worth individuals. For the first one, corporate VCs, the key thing is to see what is the really strategic interest as a strategic investor in a VC fund? Uh, would they really engage with portfolio companies? Is it just signing a ticket into a VC fund because it kind of ticks the boxes? Or is there really in intent to make links between portfolio companies and their own business units? Leading, of course, either to collaboration agreements or potentially an exit, uh, supply agreement, sharing of intellectual property, etc. And where does the fund strategy fit in with the corporate's own internal strategy around accelerators and incubators and making direct interactions with, uh, with startups? That's one. For large financial investors, I would say, where does a VC fund sit in in their version of asset classes? 
how serious that they are is for the really large ones, a VC investment is essentially a drop in the bucket. But uh, is it also in line with, let's say, impact investments, uh, sustainable finance, et cetera, where does that fit in? And then can they really support the VC fund in the scale up, leading obviously to an IPO? That's really the, the, the core of what they do. And for high net worth individuals, family offices, what we as fund managers would really look for is their network. You know, they can pick a phone and introduce a portfolio company to maybe a different geography, maybe a different customer, and then so on. And that's really a bit of the entire network effect which can build about. Great. Thank you for this overview. Thank you. And Dominic, I have a question for you. We saw before the numbers that Thomas shared. We also read the news. The current economic times are challenging. Is now a good time to look for investors or has this uncertainty really taken a toll on the investor landscape? Yeah, well, obviously, I think that uh, every VC fund that's fundraising right now will recognize uh, the fact that the interest rates that are high and the pressure, you know, the competition with the money markets is very high. And generally speaking, the appetite for VC investments from LPs have has shrunk. I mean, that's a reality. Uh, with regards to uh, the landscape here in Switzerland, uh, it's also been mentioned in the past, you know, institutional investors, pension funds in particular, even when the market was very high and very attractive for VCs, were um, not investing much, just a little bit in this asset class and was taking baby steps. What I heard through uh, conversations recently with some pension funds was that this appetite for VC has taken yet another step back given the current situation. So it, it was already small in the first place, now it's uh, completely stopped or very, very minor. This is taking a toll on the entire industry, of course, and it trickles down, obviously, to the startups that are fundraising, right? Um, what this has, though, as an effect, obviously, is it's putting downward pressure on the on the valuations. And, you know, there are some investors still out there, and that's, this is the the positive aspect of it, some of them are looking long-term and are seeing the opportunities that are being created now. You know, PitchBook uh, made a, a study recently, showed that the valuations in, so that the value of VC deals in Europe went down from the first half of 2022 to the first half of 2023 of 61%. That's huge. It's creating opportunities that some people that are looking in the long-term, that still do portfolio diversification and still do asset allocation to venture will want to seize. So we are seeing it, it in, the, in the good sense, we're seeing the forerunners of the industry and those investors that are still investing in VC. So I hear you saying that challenging times also create new opportunities. Absolutely. Obviously. That's yeah. the way we have to see it and come out. Lucas, from your perspective, you know, you, you have been involved in this game for, for quite some time now. Is this an advantage to start a completely new fund in this environment to say, hey, we're completely new, we have a new focus? like you are doing right now to win the trust of investors? Well, I think first of all, uh, it's always good to have uh, existing relationship with investors, especially in these days. Uh, it's, it's challenging to go out as a, as a new team. We don't really consider now, let's say, the quantum fund as a, as a, as a first time fund because uh, we, we can rely on our, on our uh, platform of, of Redstone. But also there we have new, new LPs, we have new LP relationship. And this is challenging these times. I think it's also challenging for the one, those that are now raising a second fund and have not returned much money from the first fund to their investors. So uh, yeah, it is, it, it, it is not easy at this stage. We see it a bit different between the sectors. 
So for instance, real estate, pretty difficult right now to raise a fund. Uh, on the quantum side, I mean, uh, we're pretty happy with the momentum we see right now. People find this interesting. So yes, sometimes you need to have a distinct story. You need to know why you go. Or, and in, in any case, you need to have a track record that shows the performance you can deliver. Fair point. And Ariana, with your international footprint, how do the LPs in Europe compare to the ones in the United States? Um, I would say they're a little bit more transparent and quicker in, in their decision making. Uh, you get to the point a bit quicker, you know, how much do you usually invest, what's your check size? Uh, that question comes very quickly. We're here, we're a bit more timid, we don't talk about money right away, we don't like to ask directly, so how much is it that you like to, to invest? Um, the other thing, of course, is risk aversion, which is which is really something we can feel right now. Uh, you know, is it rebounding already, or is it is it going to take a while? If we look to the U.S., the optimism is higher, uh, and I think that's uh, positive. But at the same time, right, they also suffered a bit more than we did. Hearing the, this, what is it, 64% is mind-boggling. Um, but the higher the valuations go, the lower the fall. So 2021, 2020, uh, 2020, 2021, all the high flyers were suffering the most that had great U.S. valuations. Thank you for sharing that. Now assume that we have found the investors. I'm very curious to hear from you, Lucas, how did it actually work with them? Let's say you have investors on board. What are some do's and don'ts of managing that relationship? Do you have some best practices to share? Yeah, I would say the, the biggest do is deliver return, right? But uh, <laughs> um, joke aside, no, uh, I think you need to have a very proper communication with, uh, with the, the investors. You need to have a, a good quarterly reporting, a very consistent quarterly reporting. Uh, we have also uh, quite some strategic investors in our fund and their LP services is important. How can you connect them with your deal flow and with your, with your portfolio? Our fintech fund has a very good uh, track record on this. I think in most of our portfolio companies have some relationship with some of the LPs uh, on the commercial side. Uh, it's also a bit of the heritage of Redstone, right? Uh, the, the corporate uh, venture capital. So we bring this still a bit with. Don't. I think the inconsistencies being it in the investment strategy or in any reporting is a, is a killer for an LP relationship. It basically kills the trust that you build. Sure. Yeah. And at the end, it's um, money. Uh, they entrust us with their money to, to deliver return, and uh, trust is everything. Absolutely. I also want to talk about some challenges, and that one goes to you, Vivek. When you set up a new fund, as you're doing right now, you have very important choices to make. For example, the jurisdiction. How did you go about that, and what were your thoughts about choosing the best or most suitable jurisdiction for your fund? Well, I, th I think this is common knowledge in the room. Um, you know, I would say most roads point towards Luxembourg uh, for a variety of reasons, but it's just that you can hit the ground running. You know, it's really plug and play. You can find the right uh, legal structures. You can find the right administrators, etc., quite quickly. And uh, it's a bit unfortunate that uh, we don't have that thriving system of, you know, really being able to set up something quickly in Switzerland. And I think uh, I count on my colleagues here to, to explain a bit more. Yeah. With the Finma license and the Swiss uh, system of um, that will be Swiss my next system. question for Dominic. You, yeah. you have, you know, to deal with Swiss regulations with the Finma. You did that with Serpentine. Please walk us a bit through that process and what it takes to actually build and manage that Finma relationship. 
Yeah, sure. Thank you for the question. Yeah, so maybe let me start with why it was so important for us to get the FINMA license. Um, you know, getting the FINMA license allows us to actively manage our portfolios rather than just be an advisor to uh, Luxembourg AIFM. And that for us was key. You know, financial regulation exists for a reason uh, and we didn't want to operate in some of those gray zones like some others do. So we wanted uh, this to be clear. All in all, it's a very good thing, I would say. It imposes us, you know, really high professional standards uh, that we follow. It also makes us accountable for the decisions uh, that we make. So in terms of process, uh, how this works, so uh, it took us nine, uh, no, 11 months uh, to achieve. It could have taken us uh, nine months, but because of, due to a formality, we had a delay of two months. So it, it is possible to achieve uh, within nine months. Um, it's quite costly, and that's something that one has to be um, prepared to invest in. Um, it compels us, uh, in the end, to have very clear uh, roles and responsibilities split according to the different members, um, uh, individuals that work for Serpentine Ventures to make sure that we avoid fraud, uh, to, uh, to make sure that there's uh, no bis misbehavior of uh, any kind. Uh, then we have an extensive uh, um, framework regulation that we need to, to follow to make sure that our processes are very well structured. Um, then um, every new executive uh, needs to be uh, FINMA approved. So for example, when uh, I joined, um, it took quite some time actually, and they go into quite some detail uh, to make sure that you have the competencies required to take on the roles uh, that you're uh, taking on. And then last but not least, uh, we're audited on all of our activities. So that gives an additional safeguard you know, uh, to our LPs. So all in all, I would say that it imposes rigor, professionalism and additional security to the LPs. You mentioned the cost. Can you give us a range about what one has to expect to, to get FINMA approved? Yeah, about 100K. Okay. And Ariana, with your foot in the US, how does that you know, decision of the legal setup change for you, if it does at all? Yeah. We also went with the Luxembourg structure, but we're managing it from, a, from the US. That was a FINRA application. It took four hours. And I think it costs three hundred and fifty dollars. Um, we are going after the small FIMA license next year. Uh, it was purely a choice to have it U.S. managed because we didn't want to have a gap, right? Uh, hearing that it takes twelve months—that's kind of what we. I think we were expecting eighteen, and so we said we're going to set up the fund. The, we'll set up the management structure um, in an afternoon, and then we'll slowly go after the license next year. Great. Lucas, before you said the most important thing, obviously, is to deliver performance. But how do you actually do that? What is sort of your framework, your strategy there, despite the pure investment focus? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it starts with the investment strategy and the investment thesis. So for every thesis, we build it uh, data-driven. We look at the market. We look at what type of startups are out there. Is there uh, a strategy that could uh, could essentially uh, provide, uh, provide value? Uh, we have some digital SaaS-focused uh, uh, funds. We have also deep tech funds. Uh, I think especially for, for Switzerland, deep tech works quite well. First of all, we have good universities, good tech out of the university. But I would also say it requires a bit less scaling skills, not something where we are very strong at, and you do typically a bit earlier exits out of that. Then, uh, most important, identify the right startups. I mentioned before, we have our data analytics platform. We use a lot of data analytics to do outbound reach outs to the best startups. We rate three million startups globally in our, in our platform. Uh, and as a sector specialist, 
you are very well welcomed as a co-investor in, in, in some of the, of the deals. You bring the very specific sector ex expertise. And it's also very much required to understand which are the best companies. I mean, even if you have a good team and a good product and a good technology, you still need to understand the mechanics of a certain industry, of a certain uh, market to understand, uh, does that really also have a chance of success in, in that specific area. Um, yeah, and at the end, portfolio management, uh, something we all, all do, I think we connect them with our expertise, with our network, our founders, etc. Fantastic, thank you for sharing that. Dominique, why is the focus on deep tech in Europe the right focus for you to deliver return for your investors? I know you're very, very bullish on that, so I wanna hear more about that. Well, you know, uh, the the focus on uh, marketing and all of the, the B2C and all of the, the, the cases uh, where the entrepreneurs are very strong at marketing their own business, North America is very, very strong in that. In Europe, not that much. There are some and there are some champions, but generally speaking, you know, here uh, firms that develop deep tech that is what sets Europe apart. Switzerland as well, you know, we've heard about uh, all of these cases coming out of ETH, coming out of EPFL. Europe is filled with technical universities that are outstanding and delivering some of the best startups out there. And they use this, so we focus on this advantage that we have, you know, your uh, American investors, when they come to Europe, what are they interested in? They're interested in the deep tech. That's what, that's what sets us apart. So deep tech, B2, uh, uh, B2B, uh, generally speaking, and those firms that bring a combination of hardware, software, that's where we excel. So that's what we believe in also for our fund. Amazing. Thank you. Ariana, I have a challenging question. I don't want to imply that that's the case, but eventually any fund could face the challenge of actually not delivering return and not have the returns that the investors, but also the GPs were actually hoping for. How do you deal with that? What is sort of your strategy when you say, hey, we are not on track, what do you do? I mean, we're in a super high-risk business. So if you're not comfortable with, with that, um, then I think startup environment or VC is not the right one. Um, well, we've raised the minimum we need to pay for the structure uh, and, and to make the, the base investments that we want to make. If we don't raise more, it's just going to be we're continuing to be very lean and scrappy um, and not build out our team, which is uh, something that's really important to us. We are a very hands-on VC, so being able to build out the team to support our portfolio is important. Um, and then really, it takes some years to figure out if a VC is successful or not, um, right? Usually on the third fund, we're actually raising on, on actual numbers. We're kind of in between. We started with an angel club uh, that we moved to the, to the fund. So, you know, ask me in 2.5 to 3 years. Fair point. We will come back to that, okay? <laughs> Dominic, we also saw before on the slide that Thomas shared the investment volume is lower. Oh, Okay. They want to kick us out, yeah, I guess. That's what I'm thinking. The investment it's volume the is calling. Exactly. <laughs> the investment volume is lower into startups. For you as an investor yourself, is that an advantage or a disadvantage? Well, um, there are some advantages, some disadvantages to it. Uh, there are consequences. And the first consequence of that for us has been to resize the opportunity and for us to focus on what we're good at, which is uh, very early stage uh, fund investing. So it really led us to focus on this. I mean, we've done more than 50 investments in the past uh, few years, all um, precede to early Series A. And this is also where investor preference lies 
today. So it really kind of brought us to focus uh, on this. But I mean, generally speaking, we talked about, uh, you know, what, it, uh, what this entails for the industry. Um, of course, it brings attractive valuations, uh, that's for sure. Uh, it also focuses on, uh, you know, startup resilience. The, the, the best startups right now are those that will make it through this uh, tough, uh, tough patch. So that's all uh, positive. And it also uh, brings out the best entrepreneurial mindset from the, the startups. I'm convinced of that. So those are the positive aspects. The negative aspects, of course, is, um, you know, the more uh, vibrant uh, and large and growing ecosystems you have, the more this benefits everybody in the, in the market. And that we're not seeing right now. And obviously that's unfortunate. But, you know, the VC market is just like all of the other markets. It has cycles. Uh, we're now in a downturn, I believe. However, that the next, uh, so opportunities are being created. You know, we talked about that. And this will create the next upward cycle of the industry. And in my view, the next upward cycle will be even greater than the last one was. And why is that? Well, you know, the trend of corporates of delegating the development of their innovation uh, that's then being picked up by the startups, that won't change. That's even growing, actually. And the needs for innovative solutions is also growing. So in my mind, uh, you know, the next, uh, the next upturn will be uh, even greater than the last one. Lucas, when you hear that, can you second that and sort of pitch in and say, hey, LPs, you should still invest in ventures and asset class? Yes, I think that this is exactly the case. Uh, I mean, in my view, and, and history t tells, right? I mean, vintages of a bit more difficult years typically turn out to be, uh, to be uh, quite positive. Why is that? I mean, also, if we look, first of all, in private markets, I think there is a difference between venture capital and private equity. In private equity, typically you see the very attractive deals disappear. If somebody doesn't really need to sell or, or look at the succession, maybe you don't see that deals or you have maybe more, more, more risky deals uh, around in, in down cycles. Well, in venture capital, startups always need money. So there is always this constant flow of ideas, of things. And the fact, and then uh, because there is less mo money, maybe you have then uh, better terms. You can, uh, you, you can invest maybe a bit less, less uh, heated uh, valuations. But more important that you mentioned it is the, is the capital efficiency that is imposed uh, to the startup. If there is less capital, typically it's, it's by spent more wisely, which makes a, brings out better better startups. So I think it's a good way to escape the volatility of the of the stock market and to go into 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 venture capital. And yes, we need an exit market and we are in cyclos on the exit market. Today would not be a good one if we raise a fund now and invest now. Our exit market is in five years from now. So nobody knows where the exit market is at that time. Just the hope that it's in a better spot than right now. Oh yeah. Vivek, you are the right person to ask the next question. A lot of investors talk about the need for more sustainable investments, but do they actually put the money where their mouth is? Yes, I would say yes, because you know it's the need of the hour at the moment. You know, people are talking. There are different parameters for this. We saw earlier Article Nine on, on the slides, which is the EU taxonomy thing. But for corporates, industry players, you know, they are working themselves on the scope one and scope two, but scope three is a bit outside of their operations. So they really need to invest because they have made public commitments. Many, many large companies across sectors have made public commitments of what they will achieve, how will they make the planet a better place by 2030, 2035, 2040, 2050 even. But where are the technologies? Where are those, um, you know, the external sources of innovation? And that's where they, you know, the money is starting to flow internally, working directly with, the, with external technologies and through venture funds. 
So I would say, yes, there is a real commitment because they'll be held accountable by the financial community for the commitments they are making in public. That's great to hear. And Ariana, how does that look from a diversity angle? You know, we also saw uh, pitches before say, hey, diverse teams has scientifically proven better performance. How important is diversity for you as a fund, as a team yourself, but also for the investments that you make? Yeah, I completely agree with Jacqueline. It's super important and the science um, backs it. It is important to us, but it's not something that we've put front and center. Like we don't talk about the fact that we're an all-female team. Uh, we do have some men in the extended team, but the full-time team are, are all women. And this sort of translates into our LP base and the investments we make. I think about 41% of our portfolio has at least one female founder. And I think that's purely because we look at it differently. Just, you know, you're attracted by what sounds and, and looks like you. Um, and this applies to us the same way. So it is something that we do pay attention to, but mostly on, you know, are we checking our biases? And when we're discussing startups, we discuss biases more than we discuss, okay, how many female, how many males, how many diversity, et cetera. But there's not like a fixed ratio that you commit yeah. yourself to. It's more of a being aware yeah. of the biases. Yeah. Yeah. So one last question for Lucas before we open for questions from the audience, so get them ready. Lucas, we see also technological advancements you know, in the investment landscape, talking about tokenization or deal-by-deal -deal structures. How do you see that you know, impacting your daily life and, and your job, basically? Yeah. Okay, so on the deal syndication side, obviously you see it, you see some special early stage deals which are syndicated through uh, uh, ordinary partnerships and, and similar structures. I think it's quite positive because it keeps the, the cap table lean. For us as a, as a, as a fund investor, uh, we believe in the portfolio, we believe that we need to deliver the full return of a portfolio. That's why we more focus on, uh, on fund structures. Um, tokenization, uh, Let's put it the other way around. We have, if we want to convince an LP, we need to first convince him about venture capital as an asset class. We need to convince him about our team, our track record, our investment thesis. And the least I want to do is have an additional conversation about the structure. So our, at least that's the way we operate. We try to keep as plain vanilla as possible the structure, the term, so that at least there we don't end up in, a, in an additional uh, discussion. I think there are interesting uh, concepts around. Uh, they will come, but uh, we don't want to, let's say, add this question. The, the one thing we see most uh, interested also from, from LPs are more like semi-liquid uh, structures. I think this is something which could also or will come uh, anytime soon. Yeah. But I hear you saying the first two challenges are already hard enough to fight. You don't need a third battle. Exactly. Great. So we now have time for three questions. I already see the first one right here. Let's quickly share a microphone so we can also get that on tape. Cheers. Um, so when looking at deep tech, we see in the EU an ever-increasing legislation, for example, the AI Act. So I was think, wondering, do you think that the legal environment will become an ever-increasing cost and barrier to entry for startups? Difficult question. That's a great one. So generally speaking, I don't think that um, this will be something that will break the industry. If we look at, for example, our uh, deep tech goals and sustainability, I think that regulation will help us more than uh, be detrimental to us. Um, we're just at the forefront in this fund of investing in many startups that will have actually a push by regulation uh, to help them move forward. So that's uh, obviously, and all of the safeguards that are being imposed 
will also set the leaders uh, from the others in the industry, just like the, the, the difficult uh, situation, market situation we were talking about earlier. So for me, that's not a break at all. No, in, in quantum specifically, we even see that I think that we, that we have a benefit in Europe, uh, uh, US especially because of national security acts, very much protecting uh, the quantum developments. I mean, some startups are required to only have uh, US pass holders uh, as employees, and this brings now more and more investors to Europe uh, because we want to have certain freedom, obviously, who, whom to select uh, in the teams. Thank you. I will take this. Who has a second question? We have room for two more. Yes? No? Okay. That was a false hand. Yes. Thank you. If I look at the US and compare with Switzerland in particular, I see a lot of pension funds and downs investing like hell. I look at EDH, I look at the Swiss pension funds. In a nutshell, that sucks. What is it that you think needs to happen, being it the association, the regulators, whoever it is, FINMO, you name it, that we get those guys on board and support because their objective should be invest in the future. Pension funds, look at this. Endowments, sure. That's all I need to say. Greetings from Stanford. Thank you. Thank you very much. Who wants to take this one? As, a, as an early stage investor, we are actually struggling to even make the jump from individual investors to institutional. So pension funds are not even, we're not even looking at that. Who, who? Well, just out of, uh, out of interest as well. And uh, I mean, this has been something that we've been fighting for for years to try to get uh, pension funds and uh, to invest. What I think um, that we need to do uh, is to convey, convince the gatekeepers, you know, to have a look at this seriously. What we've been doing at uh, Swiss Ventures Group, which is the parent company uh, that owns Serpentine Ventures, is we've launched a course at IMD called Venture as an Asset Class. And this is really to try to get more knowledge in the industry and the more people know about investing in VC, the more they'll be interested in engaging in that asset class. Um, there are a few pension funds that assisted this class and that, um, that uh, gave very, very good feedback from that, but knowledge is definitely one. But this, you know, even if pension fund managers are convinced by it, what they tell us is they are measured against KPIs that are TER related, for example. And so if they do invest in startups, most of the time they do it directly, which in my opinion makes no sense, but that's something we can uh, talk about at, at another point. But the, the KPIs need to change uh, as well. And generally speaking, the appetite for, right, uh, the appetite for risk, sorry. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, in Switzerland, a couple of years back, we had something like 1,500 uh, pension funds, if I recall. I think that number did decrease, but still we have so many pension funds. Lots of them are, let's say, part-time managed uh, from uh, because they're part of a, of, a, of a corporate. And then you have the gatekeeper. So I think it's, it's structural driven that nobody in that chain has really, let's say, any incentive to go in or to maximize uh, the return and go into into venture capital as an asset class. We have recently, we have this summer or, or spring published a, a, a study where we looked at the cap table of a couple of very successful European uh, um, startups. And we looked at who is actually on that cap table. And I think we found an average of 10, 15% of US uh, um, pension fund money in there. And it was 0.2% of European pension money. 
in the cap tables of the most successful European startups. And I think that should be something for us to, to think about. Sounds like a missed opportunity. Yeah. Shouldn't there be a layer, a separate layer pooled where they can allocate a percentage and somebody really professional manages that? that in my view, that's the only solution. Yeah. Yeah, there have been a couple of attempts, right? It's not, 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 not successful so far. I think it's a question of cost, but yes, I totally agree with you. We have time for one last question right here. I will bring the mic. While we wait, maybe the IMD course, uh, Venture as an Asset class, there are some more uh, sessions happening, one in April, one in September. Have a look. So I'm, um, I'm here as, as a person, not representing, but I'm part of the expert of sustain, the Sustainable Finance Expert Commission of the Swiss Banking Association. And we are working on a paper that we will publish next year on the mobilization of private capital. So if you have any idea regarding incentives that we can give to pension funds, just uh, drop us a note. Um, uh, apart from that, one question that I would have for you, I mean, obviously in your teams, you do both investments and fundraising, you know, rough idea of how much of your time is spent in um, investing and how much of time is spent in fundraising? Great question. Who wants to go first? I time track so I can easily answer that. Um, I, I'm not the chief fundraiser in our team. That's my partner, Sophie. I know she spends currently about 70% of, of her time fundraising. Uh, for me, it's about 25%. And that's what during the active fundraising time, right? So. Yeah, it, it moves through and uh, you know, it's, a, it's a dynamic figure between uh, fundraising and, and the investments because it follows the cycle of the, of the fund itself, you know, five and five for uh, raising and investing and then five for exits when you start to raise your second fund. But I think there's no one answer to it really. Um, it's, it, it depends on also how you manage your team and who's responsible for investor relations. The other people are a bit more focused on. Um, and I think it's not just the fundraising, it's about then managing the investor relations, you know, seeing what the LPs really want and how do you manage the relationships, uh, building the contact. It's not just the, the initial part of the fundraising, but it's a regular contact with the investors. So you, you know, effectively, as fund managers, you are there to serve the investors as well. So what is, it, what is it that they really want? Just a financial return, that it's well and good. If it's also interactions with the portfolio, uh, understanding of the technologies, the trends, what's new in the market, et cetera, it takes a bit of time. But I think it's important also for the success of the fund and to be successful into a second fund. Great, I think we have plenty more that we could talk about. I just wanna ask you one last question before we head over to the upper row. Every single one of you, please, in one sentence, what is your outlook for 2024 and beyond in terms of investments and returns in VC as an asset class? Let's start with you, Ariana. I'll stay with my what goes up must come down or what is down must come back up. Uh, it's been a year, I would say, in late 2024. We'll, we'll, we'll go back up on an uh, upward swing. Great. Dominique? I also believe in a slow but steady market recovery. And with regards to returns, I think that um, all of the very strong um, selection of startups that has been made this year uh, is going to render more than uh, the returns that were in the past. 
Yeah, so I think exit market will still take two, three years to really uh, rebound, but uh, we still see uh, very good entrepreneurs, good startups, and I think there's good things that which is currently built and that will profit from a rebound later. Great. Vivek? I think I'm even more optimistic than my colleagues <laughs> because uh, I think outside of, you know, we have just recovered from the pandemic, there's political turmoil going across in different parts of the world, but climate tech is still the, the biggest challenge. And... Uh, we see world is really there to deliver um, the expectations from consumers, from stakeholders, from investors, and I think the rebound would be much better. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you all so much for joining us, Ariana, Dominic, Lucas, and Vivek. A big round of applause for our panelists. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs. <laughs> <laughs>